0: Hello and welcome to my digital talk with my guest today, Tracy Shoukard. Tracy manages an energy and commodities portfolio for a family office. She has also recently joined a hedge fund, Telemetry, as the energy commodities analyst. Uh, Tracy graduated with honors from the University of Southern California and she holds a degree in political science with an emphasis on international relations and comparative politics. The topic of our digital discussion today is global energy transition or in the language of the Davos uh, elite, uh, the big reset in global energy. Now, there is no secret uh, that the global system has been undergoing An historic energy transition uh, driven by the decarbonization policies of uh, the developed economies and their governments on the one side, but also the rapid advances in low-carbon technologies on the other. I would like to discuss with uh, you, Tracy, first and foremost, what the current large-scale shifts uh, disrupting the global energy systems are, and what are the main geopolitical implications of the global energy transition from your perspective?
1: Well, first I think we need to look at what are the macro conduits for, um, for, for, for this sort of energy change, energy transition. Um, and uh, for one, that's demographics. Uh, we have uh, world population growth and urbanization. So um, we have geographic shifts in migration. World population at right now is uh, around 7.2. Um, it's expected to grow to 9.2 billion by 2040. Um, and urbanization shares going to rise with that from 56% to 64%. Um, so, with that, we're going to need more and more resources and new and creative ideas and solutions uh, for energy um, as our current systems are going to get bogged down. Um, and this this eventually leads to rebuilding of aging systems, say, in, in the West, um, and then actually building out new systems in um, third world countries. Um, you know, in African, say, in African nations. Um, Then we also have uh, economic forces. Um, Those are the forces that bring governments, companies, and consumers to supply, convert, transport, use energy resources, dispose of those energies, market structures, regulatory structures, um, distributional and environmental consequences, um, and economically efficient use of energy. Um, so we have are you know depletable or renewable and then we also have um, storable or non-storable um, and economics makes uh, makes this more compelling for transition um, for example um, power producers switching from coal to say natural gas because it's become effective and cheaper than coal um, over the years and transitioning also means it needs to be economically viable for work for countries um which is why we will see transition happening kind of in different stages uh across the globe uh then we also have socio-cultural forces um which are forces that affect uh societies uh, basic preferences and uh, behaviors um People are part of a society and a cultural group, and that shapes their beliefs and values. Um, so, everyday routines, habits, aesthetic preferences, lock, locked in logistics of consumption, and mobility are very important features um, that constitute acceptance or resistance to this energy transition. Um, next, we have technological forces. Um, so, you have technology change, which is, you know, uh, defines basically as a shift uh, to a new production function uh, resulting in an increase in, in, uh, in efficiency um, of a product or process um, this is the main source of economic growth um, in strictly economic terms technological change is represented as a positive transformation um, and that often arrives in waves of related in innovation. Um, for decades, technological process has contributed to major production gains, uh, energy supplies, and improved efficiency in energy use. Um, we've moved from, from we as we move to a low-carbon economy. New technology and digitization will drive unprecedented change um, in the way that energy is created and used. Um, we have um, ecological um, that are working right now. So um, there's nat- these are natural forces in the macro environment. And these are very important because um, they're about natural resources, which we're talking about energy. Um, today we see environmental concerns that have grown strongly in recent years, uh, which makes ecological force a crucial crucial factor to consider right now. Uh, we are increasingly seeing government intervention as well in natural resource management. Um, world air, water. Uh, and water pollution are at the forefront right now of uh, the global policy forcing companies more than ever to reconsider and implement environmental sustainability policies um, not only in response to the government but in response to consumer demands uh, for environmentally uh, friendly uh, products um, and then finally we have political force Um, which are also geopolitical, but we can kind of touch on that later. But energy decisions are influenced by political factors. These include government structure, power balances, um, actions taken by politicians, and partisan-based or self-serving actions taken by the citizens. Um, Not all governments are likely to respond in the same way to growing energy demands of their citizens. Um, we find that democracies are likely to be more responsive uh, to their citizens. However, this comes at a cost, uh, throwing strains on the environment, um, which uh, which need to be addressed. Um, therefore, you need to, uh, therefore, understanding uh, the variation of political systems to help identify why some policy proposals. Uh, regarding energy transition are more welcome in some nations and less than others. Um, And the key sources of domestic opposition and support might differ substantially um, across countries with different political systems, such as the difference between the West and uh, India and China, for example, Uh, which is why we will find that a one-size-fits-all solution is going to be very unlikely um, and more innovative proposals will be needed to reflect the political constraints um, shaped by natural leaders in different kinds of political environment. So mm-hmm. those are macro strokes of you know underlying this new uh, policy, uh, this new rate reset, this new uh,
0: energy transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank you, Tracy. Now, uh, speaking of big reset in global energy um, would mean, of course, that uh, the one component which will be hard hit and is on the losing side, or at least it's meant to be on the losing side, is definitely uh, the big oil. Um, So I would like to... Address uh, the trend regarding the big oil, and um, of course, um, how do you assess uh, this? Uh, you know, the, what is your anticipation, and how do you assess uh, this this particular trend? Knowing that on the one side we have all these decarbonization plans being announced since 2015. Meanwhile, we have also an agenda and we know that uh, um, some governments are planning to introduce a complete decarbonization of uh, their societies of their economies by 2050 some even earlier but 2040 china announced i mean china joined officially and announced a complete decarbonization by 2060 uh, so these are quite, uh, you know, um, long-term oriented uh, agendas. So, um, on the other side, if you look um, what, uh, for instance, big banks, uh, let's say the last two three years, uh, the figures clearly show that the world's largest investment banks have still provided quite a lot of liquidity billions of, uh, if not trillions of uh, financing for the fossil fuel companies, um, which also have been further expanding in new oil and coal and gas projects. And that happened actually following the Paris Climate uh, Change uh, Agreement, right? So I would like to, uh, to 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 ask you what is your um, view on this uh, specific trends regarding the big oil uh, is it just the political rhetoric or do you see already you know the changes taking place in this specific uh, sector and um, and also are these plans about 2050 2060 uh realistic okay well we'll start there with that so i'm um, my response to that would
1: be energy transition always takes longer than I believe. We have a lot of lofty people, but, you know, technology only can move, you know, so, so fast, right? I mean, we've been looking at trying to transition to solar since the 1970s. 50 years later, we're not, you know, we're just kind of at the place where it's kind of, it's now a viable uh, renewable resource for um, some countries. Um, and I think that right now we're hearing a lot of peak oil demand, right? Um, which, you know, the problem with that is that doesn't mean peak oil price. And, you know, economies are going to transition at different, at different paces, right? you are going to have a first world nations be able to make that transition a lot easier than Um, say third world nations or even emerging markets. Um, So in actuality, I think that we're setting ourselves up right now, trying to transition too quickly um, and we're setting ourselves up for an actual fossil fuel energy crisis um, in the not so near future. Um, Or actually in the near future. Um, So transition is it's expensive again. Laborious. It's a great undertaking. Um, I think um, right now we have a lot of loss. We, we do still have you know exploration and production going on right now, and you know people are finding new finds, new gas finds, things of that nature. But um, if you take the industry as a whole, the global industry, um, loss of capital expenditure, loss of funding. Um, Policies such as, you know, banning federal fracking or uh, banning drilling on federal lands that include offshore and onshore. Um, That's going to lead the world to, I think, uh, a supply shock Um, as far as you know oil oil demand is concerned. Because I don't think, again, this is going to happen as fast as we think, and I think we will likely see a very big uh, oil price spike. Um, and we have to be uh, kind of cognizant of that, because that would have a profound effect on a lot of economies, especially emerging markets, again, that are heavily dependent on fossil fuels at this point. Um, it could actually cripple some economies that, and at the very least, will hamper growth. Um, so we have to be uh, forward and proactive in recognizing that the world's still running on fossil fuels right now. As much as we want that to change tomorrow, it's not going to change tomorrow. Um, and you know, in that respect, um, moving on to the next thing is that, that my where I consider a solution for this um, is natural gas, um, and I think that would play a crucial role in the future and in, in, in this transition period because. Inexpensive and it's abundant, and we see places like the Middle East and uh, the Eastern Mediterranean um, are putting a lot of money in, in that area. And you know, they foresee this. Um, so I think that's a good kind of transition step towards cleaner energy policy um, that is uh, that works for uh, you know all countries. Um, again, I you know, I just don't, as far as 2050, 2060, um, I just don't foresee and end the fossil fuels that quickly. Um, you know, it's especially, I mean, we have countries like Germany, who ironically, you know, are champions of the Green New Deal. Um, you know, they're, they're adding coal capacity still. Um, and then you have China, and China, you know, China promises that, you know they're going to have energy transition but again they, they too are, are already are still adding full capacity and it's still a major 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 portion of their their output um so um i mean you know i'm mean, for new technologies I'm very excited um you know i want to be able to teleport someplace <laughs> um mm-hmm. but i just don't I just don't see, I just, we're just not there yet. Um, And I think fossil fuels will still play a crucial role for a a bit longer than um,
0: people anticipate. Um, It's interesting that uh, I think not so many people do realize that the world might be faced with a supply shock before there is a, a demand peak for oil. Um, And before we move to other questions I would like to also stress that um, I think it was a few years ago when, um, you know, the climate pressure and the debate about the environmental repercussions from the exploration of uh, fossil fuels was not so, uh, you know, intense like it is now. Uh, There was the former Bank of England Governor Mark Carney who actually announced that the world would need at least $7 trillion, uh, to fund global carbon reduction commitments um, if, the, if any climate goals were to meet, right? So then you mentioned the new Green Deal by the European Commission, and we already know that the um, so-called European Green Deal investment plan seeks, uh, seeks to increase funding for this transition uh, towards renewables, by mobilizing at least one trillion of euro, of, of, uh, of euro. so we have these sums, huge, uh, um, you know, funding, which is needed for the transition um, during a time of pandemic, where all economies, without an exception, uh, have been hard hit. And, um, and then given the fact that um, in April, immediately after the first lockdowns were introduced last year, the price of oil, as we know, um, turned negative for the very first time in history. Um, and, uh, and this price collapse was also exacerbated by the Saudi Russian price war during that time. It was a kind of, you know, colliding of uh, several factors, but now what uh, makes me think is um, we have this huge funding on the one side needed for the transition, which is, uh, you know, a huge liquidity that we don't have. I mean, no economy in the world is right now in the situation to uh, invest long term without saving first and foremost the, the own economy from the pandemic, right? And then we have also uh, what you named as a possible uh, supply shock, which would mean also that the price of oil would even surge, if I'm wrong on that. So I would like to ask you, do you see any concrete triggers uh, in the short term for, uh, you know, with relevance for this transition for uh, the period 2021, 2022, 2023, where we will probably, uh, you know, see a kind of a slowdown of these plans, even though the the political rhetoric is very strong? Um,
1: Well, you know, obviously, you know, we're still just coming out of this. Every country is massively, you know, added to their debt. Everybody's, you know, debt to GDP is, off the charts right now um so i think that right now i mean our focus really has to be in getting people back to work you need people employed you need you know um there's sort of internal politics you, you need to take care of your people first right um before which you know you can contribute this to you know yes you can make a lot of jobs uh with these sort of trans, uh Side of the argument too, but I just think that definitely the the pandemic is definitely going to slow slow things down um, with regards to um, policy and whatnot. Because there's only you can't you can't uh, change anything too fast while nursing yourself back to health. <laughs> In other words, right? Um, so. Um, you know, I think it'll be, I think that's going to be the, uh, the you know, if there's a slowdown, that's going to be the major, the major hiccup is that we really need to focus on um, mm-hmm. internal domestic affairs, all, all of our countries, and before we, um, you know, try to implement a global uh, green initiative. Mm-hmm.
0: And you also mentioned gas. Um, which uh, is considered by many as uh, the cleaner alternative to oil. Obviously, there is this anticipation that uh, gas will play a major role or bigger role in the energy portfolio of uh, many countries in this transitional period towards renewables or nuclear energy or any other cleaner alternatives. Um, so, um, if we take uh, Europe as an example, uh, there is now this big dispute, uh, you know, between European member states uh, because uh, Germany is pushing forward um, the so-called North Stream 2.0 Uh, gas pipeline uh, from Russia which would actually increase the dependence on Russian gas Uh, and then again you mentioned also uh, possibility of gas exploration in the Mediterranean uh, Sea where there is also a dispute between Turkey and Greece Uh, there are also um, future gas exploration possibilities also in the Black Sea so obviously um, and then there is also the case with the liquefied gas with the LNG, uh, where United States is also trying to become a factor, and it's already actually a factor in, uh, you know, on the supply <coughs> side, uh, with, uh, you know, with uh, even on, on, on European uh, markets. Uh, for instance, Poland is such a customer for American LNG. So how do you see this traditional uh, phase? Um, being uh, influenced by, you know, by by other uh, components of the energy portfolio. What will be, in your view, the role of uh, gas, but also renewables, and you mentioned since when actually renewables will be ha- have been developed and, seen, and still we are not really um, much ahead. Yes, the technologies are progressing, yes, there have been technological breakthroughs but still if we look at the energy portfolio of, uh, of the majority of countries renewables are still uh, you know have still a very minor share so what is your what in your view how much will, will it take in your view until this uh, you know portfolio is being diversified by uh, you know, by gas and uh, nuclear energy and renewables, and uh, when will gas take over from the big oil, in your view? Well,
1: yeah, you know, I think right now we're seeing a lot of transition to gas. I think it's just not being marketed well, and I think if it was marketed a little better, it would be um, uh, it, it would take off a little bit more but you know we are seeing uh countries use more and more gas again it's cheap it's abundant um uh, and it's a great transition instead of trying from you know coal to hydrogen you know there's a middle ground in there right so that's cheaper that's expensive and that's why i think that it'll become more and more important um in that transition especially for um, europe um, as far as renewables are concerned, I mean, there's still the problem that, you know, if the wind's not blowing and the sun's not out, you still need something to fill in that. We're all, you know, we've seen here in the UK and California um, because they don't have a filler, you know, kind of a, a transition filler for, in their electrical grids, right, which gas is a perfect backup for that. Or a perfect transition for that, and and especially for again poorer nations. Uh, as far as renewables concerned, I mean, I think we're building out, you know, pretty you know as quickly as you can. But again, yes, I mean, it's generally well in Europe. It's a lot more than the United States, where in the United States is only about 10% of the, the portfolio. In Europe, um, you know, you have a lot more um, and whatnot, and. I think nuclear is interesting because i think that i think it's a very viable technology i think there's been a lot of advance um as far as as nuclear energy is concerned but for some reason it's just not everybody still thinks chernobyl or something (laughs) um you know germany's shutting plants um you know really U.S. is shutting plants, and really, we only see France that's really sort of embraced uh, nuclear technology. Uh, but I do think that you know that is another venue that I think uh, should further uh, because there is new technology, um, and it's not you know like it used to be. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you think that there that we might see technological breakthroughs in the next five to ten years in one of these uh, particular um, parts of the energy uh, sector, where suddenly there will be a new way of, uh, you know, of um, energy exploration, or is it just too hard, you know, too too courageous to expect such uh, such development? Uh, with the fourth industrial revolution?
1: I think that, um, I think that, you know, I think that in the next five to ten years we'll find better solutions than even wind and solar. I mean, we've been trying wind and solar for a very long time, and it hasn't really taken off, taken off, and it hasn't proven to be completely 100% reliable. Even though, you know, there are good things about it. I don't want people to come back and say, don't like wind and solar I love wind and solar I'm just saying I think that there, there are better more ways um, to I think that we will be you know we're starting to see more hydrogen um you know and things of that nature so I think um I, I think technology um is you know it's progression is not a constant generally you know kind of when you go down that road it Kind of snowballs as far as that's concerned. So I think once we start to um, you know get away from wind and solar and start um, looking at other technologies such as you know such as hydrogen or anything uh, you know like you know of the like um, you know different kind of batteries the use of graphene. I mean there's a whole lot of ideas out there. Um, so I'm confident that within five to ten years, we'll probably find something that um, probably is you know better than what what we're doing now. Um, but will it be uh, readily available? Probably not. You know, will it be readily available to be mass produced? Probably not. Um, but you know, I'm I, I'm positive in the fact you know positive forward thinking that. We will find new te- technologies, create new technologies because um, we have so many people working on that in, in that industry right now, right? I mean, it's created a whole new industry um, of ways to create new kinds of energy. Um, so now that we have people working on it, we'll probably, you know, we will definitely, you know, find new ideas. Um, but again, it's going to be back to can it be mass produced? Probably not. Um, so you still are going to need. What we're doing now with renewables. Um, mm-hmm. um,
0: now let's go um, to the to the other side of uh, of um, energy, which is the geopolitical aspect of uh, of energy. And um, uh, as we all know, a lot of uh, the military conflicts from the last decade and of course in previous decades, but I would like to focus on the on the most recent one, um, have been linked to energy interests. Um, so from Iraq and Syria, uh, moving to Nigeria and uh, Sudan, South Sudan conflict, and even if you look at uh, the conflict, uh, the military conflict in Ukraine and with Russia, uh, and um, basically annexing Crimea and having suddenly an access, uh, larger access to, to the Black Sea where, like I said, there is also um, a lot of, uh, you know, potential for future energy exploration um, and then moving to Asia and looking at, for instance, uh, East and South China Sea. There are all conflicts where we will find uh, a, a link, uh, a nexus with the access to energy resources with, the, uh, you know, for future exploration of uh, energy resources, a very fresh example also with uh, the Mediterranean conflict between Turkey and uh, Greece and then looking at the map of the global um, chalk points for oil supply we will also find out that uh, you know the key choke points for our supply um, happen to be situated coincidentally in uh, areas <laughs> where there is a lot of uh, military of military tensions. Um, so, given that reali- these realities. I would like to you know to ask uh, to ask you about your assessment uh, as to how geopolitics of energy will impact uh, future conflicts and will also affect the global power competition. Um, in this context, I have to add a sentence um, regarding China and uh, United States systemic rivalry. We know that China. Is meanwhile the greatest, uh, um, you know, um, the, the actor which has the greatest hunger for um, energy supply, and uh, is also projected to grow even faster now following the pandemic, due to the fact that uh, China has, um, you know, coped uh, relatively successfully with, uh, you know, with the with the COVID nineteen crisis. Um, so, how? In your view, will the geopolitics of energy impact this, 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 future conflicts, um, existing conflicts, but also probably future conflicts? Where do you see the hotspots? Of course, linked to energy interests and linked to potential exploration of energy resources. What is your view on that?
1: Um, well, first, I'm looking at different areas, so um, first what I find interesting um, is we have the GCC block, right, um, which, you know, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Bahrain, and Qatar just ended their, you know, rancorous three-and-a-half-year uh, dispute over towards Iran. Um, and you know, that's kind of restoring much-needed cohesion in the GCC. DC, which also includes Kuwait and uh, and Oman. Um, so I think that is a really interesting um, uh, event that just happened. I you know and I you know obviously the Middle East is always a hot spot kind of for conflict and oil conflict. Um, so I think that's very important to note. Um, and then the East Med block, um, you know. Uh, The East Med uh, Gas Corridor is becoming increasingly more important um, via the East Med Natural Gas Pipeline Project, which connects uh, the Mediterranean. uh, Um, So you have Greece, uh, Cyprus, and Israel, who were the signatories on that pipeline agreement back in, what, January of 2020. but the area also includes, you know, Italy, Jordan, and Egypt. So um, you kind of have that, that alliance right now. Um, in fact, together they all just established the East Mediterranean Gas Forum, which is kind of an intergovernmental organization. Um, so I think, you know, that, that's another spot that I think is very important to note. I also think it's a very up-and-coming, you know, up-and-coming spot. Um, as far as exploration is concerned another very important area um, um, and it's another a very important trade route right because it's right you know in the near the horn of the, the horn of Africa right which um, again another hot spot you know a, a big trade route that you know, definitely has the potential to there uh, going forward um, then we have Turkey, right? We were just discussing Turkey. Now, um, obviously, Turkey's not really thrilled about the uh, block. Um, but I think that possibly that um, this may, in turn, uh, turn Turkey more towards its corridor partners, Azerbaijan and uh, Georgia. And actually, believe it or not, possibly Iran. Um, both Turkey and Iran are uh, fighting for influence in the Middle East right now, um, and they're both supporting opposing proxies. But we have to remember that these two are big trade partners, and they also share uh, cultural, linguistic, and uh, ethnic, um, and ethnic traits. So you know, um, if there's no resumption of JCPOA or like agreements, energy could be another binding tie between Turkey and Iran, um, especially if U.S., Europe, and Turkey ties continue to be uh, strained or escalates any further. I know that that sounds way off, but I, I definitely see that as, as, a, as a possibility. And you know, you have to remember these kind of alliances are really not that unprecedented. We have Iran and Saudi Arabia who can you know, peacefully no OPEC, even though, um, you know, despite their ongoing, you know, proxy wars and uh, political clashes. Um, and then, it, you know, and then that kind of leads me, <laughs> that kind of leads me to uh, China, you know, uh, because, you know, I think we're starting to see China kind of infiltrates and exploits Iran, um, especially since, uh, the the U.S. left JCPOA, right? Um, uh, It started with them just, you know, buying their black market oil. Um, You know, but now we're seeing a little bit, some investment, some interest. You know, so I think, you know, China's kind of really ready. If nothing happens with the West, you know, China's ready to, you know, make a move on Iran. Now, whether Iran wants that or not, because they are skeptical of of China, so um, that's a, you know going to be a fascinating uh, uh, event to see happen. going to be a fascinating like to see what transpires between those two, um, because they have a you know a lot of things that are working against them as well. Um, and then uh, again, back to Africa, I would say that you know. Um, i think conflicts will definitely continue in africa um all, you know all over africa you know you have russia iran and china again um that have you know strong strong holds in the area you know not not only in the energy realm but in, in militarily and financially as well um and this likely forces probably you know i could force these. This is forcing the United States and the UK to take a more aggressive stance in in Africa. Um, Because, you know, France is kind of losing its grip and influence in the region and its relationships are kind of deteriorating. So those are kind of the hot spots that I'm particularly watching at this point.
0: So, um, for instance, uh, because you mentioned uh, uh, the possibility of, um, um, you know, an increasing role for Iran, and now, we, of course, under Biden's uh, administration, there is the anticipation that uh, the United States uh, might turn, return to the GCPOA, which was the Iran deal, or might at least try to somehow normalize the relations with Iran, which of course will strengthen Iran's uh, position in the Middle East once again. And then there was also the deal between uh, Iran and uh, China, which was announced uh, last year. We, including also an agreement uh, up to 280 billion of US dollars um for developing uh, iran's oil and gas and petrochemical uh, sectors of course this is a sum which you know uh, currently looks very unrealistic due to the pandemic and um, and um, <laughs> and the uh, economic situation, um, but uh, still, it has to be uh, taken into consideration. Uh, one um, potential hotspot uh, I would like to address, uh, and to, I would like to hear your opinion uh, on this, is uh, South China Sea. We know that China is still very much dependent on supplies, on 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 uh, energy supplies, and um, uh, the access to South China Sea, uh, the control over the South China Sea and certain, you know, parts of it uh, would also give Beijing the uh, the opportunity for future exploration of energy resources. Uh, do you think that this might turn into a potential hotspot? So far, it is a low-intensity conflict with the neighbors of China, but do you think that because of, uh, you know, the necessity? For you know energy resources, but also in order to provide a freedom of uh, you know navigation and to provide a kind of a china's control over these uh, maritime routes uh, which have to also you know which happen to be also the maritime routes for the oil supplies to China, do you think right. that this might also turn into a hotspot in the next let's say five and, years? Uh,
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's been brewing for a very long time, you know, um, which, you know, we've seen recently, you know, Five Eyes, uh, the Quad Alliance, you know, um, so, um, you know, that is definitely a focus, um, you know, in that area. And there is definitely potential for relations there, especially with regards to Taiwan. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's, you know, one area that everybody should be focused, and obviously the West is focused there, plus Japan, um, with these um, newer alliances made um, politically and militarily, which actually, that's another... Um, Another interesting uh, geopolitical factor that's kind of emerged from from the Quad Alliance, that um, not only is it a kind of political military alliance, it's actually totally turned into um, an energy alliance, where we just recently had um, an agreement for Australia to lease out the U.S. SPR, um, same with India. Um, it's also it strengthened, uh, you know, uh, U.S energy ties with India, we're exporting a lot more than, you know, natural gas and oil. So that is sort of uh, an, a separate alliance that has kind of organically grown from uh, political-military alliance.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, and um, I've re- I'm receiving uh, questions from the audience. I would like to ask some of them. Because I think that they are also very interesting and related to to our discussion. The one is uh, um, about the future U.S. role as a, as an energy supplier. Where do you see? Do you see actually uh, such role for the United States? I mean, uh, this transition uh, from the last few years towards being uh, also a supplier uh, has certainly you know um, influenced um, have certainly influenced um, the global affairs and uh, it's also helpful for at least uh, you know american partners and allies to um, diversify their energy portfolio to some extent so how do you assess the u.s uh, role as uh, energy supplier is one question and then there is a question about uh, europe uh, do you see the, ro- the 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 energy dependence on russia um, that it's going to increase or um, how can actually Europe decrease this energy dependence uh, on Russian gas? what would be um, you know potential other suppliers and uh, if uh, if let's say I would add this question if we take uh, iran for instance as a potential you know supplier um on the european market um to what extent will this actually affect also the the current geopolitics in the middle east in your view okay that's a lot well we'll start with the us
1: as you know you know the um you know uh, it was the Obama administration that opened up the um opened up the exports for the United States um which sort of kicked off um, you know the, the whole which helped the United States grow uh, as an energy power in the world on the world um, the thing that I see with the United States energy uh, is concerned is well first i don't we're never getting it. I think uh, the most that we produced, we were, I think we were at 12.85 million barrels per day. Um, I don't really see that to that. Um, not with you know the current capex and funding and um, you know, for for a myriad of reasons, a myriad of technical reasons, um, we just won't be able to you know, get back to that um, sort of output. Um, So, that puts the U.S. at a disadvantage a little bit in the fact that, you know, now um, we stopped the Keystone pipeline, right? Which means that we may have to become more dependent on um, Middle East, it's heavy crude. Um, So, we're going to have to get it from Colombia or the Middle East. So, it's more expensive, we're going to have to import more, we won't be a net net, possibility, we might not be a net exporter. So right now we're in a very interesting time for U.S. energy. Um, moving forward, we'll have to see, you know, what policies um, and what legislation is put into place um, because that will directly affect uh, the future of U.S. U.S. energy. Uh, my hope is obviously that um, you know we will remain somewhat pro-energy. I mean, it's it's uh, it's a lot of money right exporting mm-hmm. oil is you know that's a lot of money coming into this country you know, you know toss that aside could be detrimental to um, you know to things that to an income to, for, for a nation right because you don't really do exporting nation um, and then as far as if we go to Europe now uh, uh and relationship with russia the thing with russia is they are very aggressive as far as their energy policy and their intent to um continue um you know oil exploration and production natural gas exploration so that is their main focus i mean they're they were the you know they're in the arctic right now they're building that out um with you know they have some projects in, in the works with China, even there. So they're not looking at you know transitioning uh, that sector of their economy by by any means, as far as you know, exploration. So um, you know they're, in my opinion, probably only going to grow larger as a dominant force in uh, the oil and gas industry um, because that is their objective. Now, um, you know, as as far as Europe is concerned, unfortunately it's cheap to get it there <laughs> compared to trying to get it from from the United States. And, if, you know, if the United States is on the decline, Russia unfortunately is going to be one of those um, cheap, easy partners. Um, so trying to get away with that, you know, then you have to look at then, you know, um, you know, China's not really a big exporter. You can't go there. You, you, know, you have, you know, the Middle East, and then you know, again, then you have, um, you have the East Med corridor, right? That can also go uh, to, to Europe uh, via Greece um, or Italy. So um, those are really your only, the, the only two choices. So if you want to get away from Russia, you're probably going to have to go
0: towards East Med Africa. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, There are two questions uh, regarding, one is um, regarding the decision by Biden to scrap the Keystone um, Pipeline, what is your view on how this will actually impact um, not just relations with also with Canada, but also the um, kind of the energy Uh, portfolio of the United States, Um, uh, what kind of impact do you see uh, following this decision? Um, And then there is a question about OPEC, what will be the role of OPEC in 2021, what uh, is your expectation of this kind of, uh, you know, about the future of this, uh, of this block to, you know, and not just impact, but also amid uh, global energy transition? Um okay
1: so we'll start with US keystone. That's kind of um, you know it's in my opinion um it's not the best decision because it really is the most efficient uh, fastest safest way to transport oil. The US is still going to need oil from Canada. Um it will be railed in um but again, you know um if that if if that's dependent because if canada decides that they want to build out trans mountain to the east and start selling their oil to china then the u.s is going to have a problem because the u.s then is going to need to get it from somewhere else um i'm not saying that's going to happen those are just scenarios that you have to sort of anticipate it could happen and there's a lot of problems with trans mountain um, as far as logistically getting it done and getting, you know, 139 indigenous tribes to sign off on it and it's been in the works for years. However, you know, because there is no Keystone anymore, you know, and because I live here and I see the news, um, their focus is very heavy on Trans Mountain right now. So if that, again, if that had to send their oil to, um, to to Asia and to China, well, China's in Asia, but um, <laughs> to other nations in Asia, um, and there's a need for it too, right? They use heavy oil, so you know they could very well accomplish that, and that would um, be a risk to 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 the United States as far as you know, leaving it to find another partner that they would have to get. Oil. They can get that heavy oil from Iraq or um, Saudi Arabia, Colombia. Um, Unfortunately, Mexico just doesn't produce enough right now. Um, I mean, there are there are other options, but you know, again, that's you know in the future. But those are kind of the decisions in the energy uh, sector that will be needing to, to to watch to see what happens, um, and then you know make decisions on what kind of policies each country needs to go to make going forward.
0: Um, and then opec was the next question <laughs> um yeah, so, uh, what is your view on the role of opec uh, following the covid-19 mm-hmm. pandemic uh, like i mentioned the case with uh, last year where we had also a kind of a war between saudi arabia and russia a price war and uh, we have had this kind of um, throughout the years but what is your anticipation for the future role of opec Uh, Meet a global energy transition. Will this role shift change? Will the, will this organization actually lose uh, some of its influence? Um,
1: I mean, I think uh, OPEC. I mean, a lot of people have been saying OPEC doesn't matter anymore. You know, for for quite a few years. Um, you know, this isn't it's not nothing new. Um, but in reality, you know, and I think that's part of the reason that they join forces with uh, the Plus Nation, Russia Plus Nations, right? Because as a force together, um, they're you know they're they're a bigger dominance in in the oil markets. So I foresee that like, you know, it was this initially supposed to be sort of a temporary uh, relationship, and I think that's pretty much morphed into um, something more permanent. Um, and then, you know, OPEC, you know, OPEC is Saudi Arabia, basically, right? I mean, Saudi Arabia pretty much makes decisions. They're, by far and large, the, the big um, so I think then that they'll still, I think they'll still remain, uh, you know, still remain a, a force within the energy industry. Absolutely. Because as you see, you know, one decision, you have a price war. what happens, right? They flood the market and, you know, prices go negative. Um, and then the, the reverse case in that is when just January OPEC meeting. Okay. We're going to cut a million barrels out of the goodness of our hearts, um, and which kept oil prices steady. So um, whether we want to think OPEC's important or not, they are still important, and they're still a factor in price, um, as we saw two very big examples in 2020, and now again in 2021.
0: Mm-hmm. I see more co- questions coming. Our time is running out, so I will maybe focus on, on only Two, maximum three very, very short questions. Uh, One is related (laughs) to the (laughs) short questions. One is, uh, (laughs) one is related to um, uh, future interdependence between Russia and China uh, in the field of energy because uh, it's not only about oil supplies. There have been also gas deals uh, signed between, uh, Moscow and Beijing how do you antici- how do you anticipate this uh, future interdependence specifically in the energy sector? It has of course geopolitical implications uh, because uh, that would mean also that russia is uh, would be increasingly turning towards Asia and towards uh, you know uh, China so this is one question, and there is a second question which is um, uh, about your anticipation um, on, on, on future uh, blackouts uh, resulting from this so-called supply uh, shock and also a surge of electricity prices we've already noticed uh, during the pandemic you know the surge of electricity prices and the demand is growing and if we are going to face a situation transitional situation where uh, you know we are moving from uh, from fossil fuels towards uh, um, for instance renewables or other uh, you know energy uh, resources and we don't have uh, you know the the means to cover this demand what is your take on this Uh, would will will we face in the next uh, years an increasing uh, you know situation of increased blackouts and uh, scenarios. And then I have a personal question because I have heard (laughs) European political, mostly political experts uh, claiming that uh, the price of the oil um, would uh, be around 60 US dollars uh, this year. And I'm a little bit astonished because knowing, you know, the taking into consideration all these uh, shifts and trends that we've also covered. I think that probably we would face even higher price, Uh, you know, the price would be surging at least in the short term. So I just without, uh, you know, giving concrete prognosis, but I would like to hear (laughs) your take on this, uh, whether it's a realistic uh, assessment. Okay, so we'll start with um, what was that? The, the
1: China Russia question. So as far as China and Russia are concerned, I wouldn't say they're interdependent. I would say they are. Uh, they're convenient alliances uh, as as far as energy is concerned. I won't speak to anything else. Um, but as far as energy is concerned, I think they're convenient alliances. They have, um, you know you know alliances say in the Arctic right because they have technology and the money to do so Um, but they're definitely not dependent on one another if anything actually China's more dependent on Russia uh, because China Russia is one of its you know largest importers along with Saudi Arabia along with Saudi Arabia. So, um, you know, really China is more dependent on Russia in this uh, particular situation, talking about India. And I think they're they're business partners of convenience in places like the Arctic. Mm -hmm. Um, The next question was on, what?
0: what is your anticipation on the possibility of blackouts, yes, due to this kind of supply? Shock or transitional period.
1: Right. So um, yes, as far as electricity is concerned, and that's what I was kind of touching upon earlier, is that you know we have aging, aging. uh, The West, you know, Europe and the US um, have really aging, aging electrical electrical grid systems. Right. So um, trying to force new kind of energy on these uh, on these systems is you know it, it's kind of like just putting layer it, it's kind of if you're like coding something and you just put put on top of layer of code on top of layer of code and it's like a glitchy program i don't know if people code but i don't but it's a good analogy <laughs> um so what, what we're doing is we're just instead of you know making tearing down something making it new and making it right and efficient right we're just building on top and building on top and building on top and intermixing old and new technology that is not necessarily cohesive and that's why we're seeing a lot of problems Um, you know that's why we see a lot of problems in California that's why we see problems in the UK Um, you know and yes I foresee as you know we integrate we don't um, really take like the bottom-up approach and kind of redo these grid systems, I think we're definitely going to have a lot of problems as we start integrating new technology with old technology. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was the price of oil. So, yes, I do think, I mean, uh, we got to 60 area a lot quicker than I initially anticipated. I thought this it would come uh, second half of uh, 2021. Um, you know I expected even higher oil prices than that uh, you know following in, in the following year but um, you know it seems that and has has moved up some so I definitely think we can see uh, over $60 oil um, and and you know within a few years um, that could be even higher hmm like a lot of well, <laughs> you know I would, is, again I you know I would, be surprised to see an oil price spike, but yeah, I only see you know seventy-five, eighty-dollar oil coming. And if you would have asked me two years ago, I would have said you're crazy.
0: But and um, that's exactly change. interesting because I think there is a this 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 uh, kind of uh, uh, dichotomy between political stakeholders who do not anticipate this mm-hmm. uh, trend. And the reality on the markets, right? This, of course, will have devastating effects on on the way how the economies will be, you know, revived, right? So uh, it has to be anticipated on time and uh, certainly, you know, uh, prepared for for, for, for actions, uh, you know, based on the on the right price. I think that's right that's definitely interesting but we are going to follow uh these developments with great interest and i really really thank you uh dear tracy for taking the time um to 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 answer so many questions i have certainly <laughs> a lot more but let's uh, agree to uh to discuss them uh probably in the second half of the year uh i am quite sure that Perfect. a lot of a lot of changes are going to take place in the meantime. And um, we are observing a very, very high volatility, not only in the global affairs, but also in the markets. Absolutely. So uh, a day feels like a year. So when I say in a half of a (coughs) year, it probably would feel like a a decade. So thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) Thank you for having me. And I stay safe, it. And safe and sound, uh, you have a real have Canadian you? winter right now. So uh, stay yes. safe and sound during the <laughs> pandemic. Will and
1: do. Uh, <laughs> We'll have to and come to Austria as soon as we can fly again.
0: <laughs> You're uh, warmly welcome. And uh, let's hope that uh, second half of the year will finally witness a kind of relaxation of uh, lockdowns and also, uh, you know, travels and uh, we can finally enjoy some kind of normality. Absolutely.